let me open us up with a word of prayer now, and then I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I will, I will introduce our topic and we'll get started. So, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessing that is Lakeside. So comforting and encouraging, and, and it's just a place of peace, Lord, that you've brought believers together who are like-minded in a safe place that we get week after week to be fed your word, to hear good teaching and good worship and to fellowship with genuine believers. We, we thank you for this place. Lord, we understand that it didn't happen overnight, that it's been 35 plus years of preaching by Pastor Steve and the faithful men and women who have served in so many ministries over the year. But today, Lord, it's a blessing to us. And so we say thank you for what you've created and what you've raised up in this place. And as we step into your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes. pray that you would help me to speak clearly and to convey accurately the truth that is in your word regarding husbands. And I pray, Lord, for Pastor Steve as he opens the word and as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning. pray that you give him boldness to continue proclaiming the truth. And I pray, Lord, for each one of our hearts, that even now we'll examine ourselves to make sure that we don't have unconfessed sins and that we're repenting before we come to remember the Lord's death. And I pray for our offering for the Howards, Lord, that it would be a blessing to them. And I ask that you would continue to meet our needs, not primarily financially, Lord. Meet us emotionally and physically and spiritually. Each one of us has needs. Each one of us has struggles. We just pray that you would continue to work in us to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I indicated, we are going to be back into our message on 1 Peter. But we are in the midst of a section that is dealing, in a larger point, about how to live obedient lives. I've spent several weeks in chapter 3 dealing with the role of a Christian wife. And I emphasize and spend a lot of time talking about the first six verses of chapter 3, which is specific instruction to women on how to live as a godly wife. But this is part, as I will remind us, of a larger section on how to live obediently. If you look back at First Peter Chapter 2, in verse 12, there's a specific reference that I think really sets the stage for all that we've been covering. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This goes along with Peter telling us in chapter 1, Be holy as God is holy. And so he's exhorting us to live a certain way so that our lives are a testimony. Our lives should be evangelistic in and of themselves. And then he begins to lay out various ways in which this plays out. As you recall, he talks about submission to the government. That that's our duty. We submit to all levels of government. Not as the biggest rebels in society, but as the most compliant citizens, respectful of authority. Even if, as in the day of Peter, the government is absolutely corrupt. 
Likewise, Peter then transitions talking about slaves and masters and slaves submitting to their masters even if they are corrupt and crooked and perverse. And the application for us has to do with our employment relationship. That's the analogy for today's application of that truth. If you're an employee, your duty is to submit even if you have a horrible boss. And because Peter has asked us to do something very hard, submit to a government even if it's corrupt, and submit to an employer even if they're corrupt, you, you, could almost anticipate, you can almost see that he's anticipating the objection, but wait, these are corrupt people. What's going on? And then all of a sudden, he gives us the example of Jesus, who was subjected to greater injustice than anyone. And he lays out Jesus' example, some of our suffering is because we're called to follow in the example of Christ, who committed no sin, chapter 2, verse 22, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God the Father. It's phrased him who judges righteously. So when Peter is telling us to do hard things, to submit even to corrupt influences, corrupt people because that's God's order for society he makes it clear Jesus is the example Jesus knows what you're going through and so then when he turned to wives he takes that general idea that we should live evangelistically and puts it in the context of the foundational human relationship as I covered over many weeks various aspects the reality is marriage is the very first human relationship ordained by God before parents, before friends, before brothers, sisters, before mothers and fathers, it was Adam and Eve, husband and wife. And so Peter takes us from the public realm where we're interacting with the government or in our workplaces and brings it into the most intimate and private of settings and begins to address the duties of a Christian wife. And over several weeks... I covered these six verses, and Peter lays out for us what I termed in an outline as the marks of a godly wife. Now, I will deal with some other things before, but I alluded to this before. It's interesting that there's six verses for the wife, and there's one verse for the husband. This isn't because wives need more instruction. That isn't it. No, in that time and in that society, the wife had the much tougher life. She had a much harder role, particularly as is clear from the context, if she came to faith, which many of these women did, and their husbands were still unbelievers. It's the phraseology, disobedient to the word. Their life was hard. And so I think the extra verses aren't because women need more instruction. It was because in this context, they needed more encouragement. They needed more words affirming what they needed to do because of the difficult situation they were in. But I'm just going to go through the marks of a godly wife without going through and reteaching it. But it all came from the first six verses. She's willing to trust the Lord. It's in the same way that Jesus entrusted himself to God, she's got to do the same thing. She's willing to submit to her husband. That's a command of the Lord. Be submissive. She cares about her husband's soul. There's this whole idea of winning those who are disobedient to the word, meaning they've rejected the gospel. She's willing to let her life be her primary witness. When it says disobedient to the word, it means these husbands have heard the gospel, 
They don't need to be beat over the head with the gospel proclaimed over and over. They've heard it. What they need to see is the gospel lived out. They may be one without a word as they look at their wives' behavior. The fifth mark was she's not consumed by her external appearance. She's not consumed with her external appearance. Again, nothing wrong with looking nice. It just says that shouldn't be your primary way of displaying beauty, even in the home. Rather, in the next mark, where she prioritizes her inner character, the hidden person of the heart was the focus for the wife. She's focused on God's approval rather than man's. That was the next mark. It's precious in the sight of God. That's what she's ultimately aiming for. And then finally, she follows the example of godly women. And, and Peter laid out women from the Old Testament era, including Sarah, who honored the Lord by being submissive to their husbands. Now, that was a lot of material, and I spent several weeks going through that. But the reality is, a Christian woman who's married should want to know God's blueprint for how to live. Of course, this isn't the only teaching. We looked at cross-references. Pastor Steve, just in the evening service, did some wonderful teaching on the duties of wives. There's references in Colossians. So Peter's not teaching something new. He's teaching something that's consistent with the rest of Scripture. In fact, as I tried to emphasize week after week, and I'll emphasize with the role of husbands today, it doesn't even matter if you're not married. Because in the world in which we live, at some point, somebody you know is going to be in a relationship. Or somebody you know may turn to you and say, what do you think? And you need to know that your thinking needs to line up with Scripture, not society, when it comes to the role of a woman. But it also... As Peter's doing this, he's going to not exclude husbands. In fact, the rest of the chapter, once we get past verse 7, some great teaching for all of us. Verse 8, to sum up, all of you. So, so we've got a lot more teaching on living correctly. But we're at the doorstep now of the second part of the home. Of the husband and wife relationship. I think it's going to take me two weeks to go through this, and I've outlined it. I think there are six marks of a godly husband. I always could add some, depending on what I do. I won't take any away. But let's do this. I'm going to read the section on wives, and then I'm going to read the section on husband, which is just one verse. So follow along as I start in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, and I'm going to read down through verse 7. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy woman also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. 
and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I've already told you how I'm going to break this down. I talked about the marks of a godly wife. Now I'm just going to change things. It's going to be the marks of a godly husband. And the first mark of a godly husband is really exactly the same as what I just reviewed for you for a woman. He is willing to trust the Lord. The first mark of a godly husband is he is willing to trust the Lord. Verse 7 starts out and it says, You husbands in the same way. You husbands in the same way. Very similar language to beginning of verse 1, in the same way you wives. And because the wording is so closely related, there are some people that have actually, I think, missed the point of verse 7. So I'm going to spend a little time, even though it may jump out and seem obvious to you, and, and make sure that you don't fall into a wrong teaching that is more prevalent than you would expect in our politically correct culture today. Now first, you husbands, it's clear he's talking specifically to a group of men who are married and they know Christ. He's addressing Christian husbands in the church who have come to saving faith. This isn't general direction to society as a whole. He's speaking specifically to redeemed men. But as he introduces that, you husbands, he uses that same word that's translated in English in the same way. And since that's the same as verse 1, as I've already pointed out, the question becomes, in the same way as what? Wives were being commanded to submit to their husband. It's interesting, because that was the third time submission was laid out. Submit to the government, submit to your masters, or in our context, employers, submit to your husbands. And so some people... Take this and say what Peter is saying, since he says in the same way, is that husbands also submit to your wives. And what they do by that is they obliterate any hierarchy in a marriage relationship. And they distort a separate teaching of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.28. So let me pull that apart. I don't want to add confusion, but... I know just recently I heard of someone who was in a church service within the last two weeks where a pastor was teaching what I'm telling you is wrong. And it was in our community. And thankfully, the two people were just visiting and they came and talked to me and said, that's wrong, isn't it? Yeah, it was. So Peter's not saying to husbands, in the same way that wives submit to you, you submit to them. That's not what he's saying. There's a hierarchy in marriage, and Peter is not changing that hierarchy. Paul expressed it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 24. Ephesians 5, 22 and 24. If you haven't listened to it, listen to the recent evening service teaching of Pastor Steve on that. It's wonderful. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. There is a hierarchy 
ordained by God that wives are submissive and under the authority of their husbands. Peter is not by his use of saying in the same way, obliterating that. In fact, he's already commanded the wives to submit to the husbands, which is a recognition that he understands the hierarchy the same way as the Apostle Paul. What's happening is that he's not saying in the same way that wives submit to the husband. He's stepping back into chapter 2, I believe. And he's tying what he's saying to husbands to that example of Christ that we already saw. I read it, I'm going to read it again. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus was an example to all believers. He is an example to all believers to how to deal with the challenges of life. Specifically, he was dealing with injustice. And so he's held up as an example of how we deal with injustice. But the broader picture of his life is he didn't sin by what he did. He didn't sin by what he said. And even when abuse was hurled at him, he didn't retaliate. He didn't respond in kind. For Jesus, it was enough to entrust himself to God the Father, no matter the circumstance. That is what Peter is referencing in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way that Jesus was able to deal with life and avoid sin and avoid sinning with what he said and deal with, with injustice and unfairness, he entrusted himself to God. Husbands, you do the same thing. In the same way. Jesus lived a godly life and avoided sin and was godly in his speech and trusted God no matter what. That's how you live with your wives. It's perfect for those who are facing injustice and being treated unfairly. It's perfect for every husband, regardless of the state of your marriage. How do people miss that? What happens is they go back, and I thought I had it in my notes, but I don't, so I'm going to go there, Galatians 3, 28, and they look at a context that dealt with something different. Peter was talking about the fact that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. And he said in Galatians 3, 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now it seems clear that of course in the context of the time, yes, there were still free people. And there still were slaves because the New Testament gives instructions to slaves, including Peter. Some people were still Jewish. Some people were still Gentiles. But what Paul was pointing out was that at the foot of the cross, when you come into the kingdom of God, there aren't divisions. When we get to heaven, there's not a section for the men and a section for the women and a section for the Gentiles and a section for... No, we're all together. But some people have distorted that teaching and said God has obliterated all distinctions between men and women. 
you can imagine that sounds very popular in our modern culture when you don't even you can't even tell anymore whether somebody is a man or woman. And you have states saying you can get a new birth certificate that doesn't have a gender on it. And that's why even recently a local pastor was teaching that husbands have to submit to your wives. And he was going on and on and really emphasizing how husbands have to submit to their wives. That's not what Peter is saying at all. Don't be deceived by that kind of, I'll call it flim-flam. That's wrong. But it's happening in our community. And it's happening in our world. So, here's the point of this verse. You husbands in the same way, it's possible that you're, if you're married, your wife may not be perfect. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> it's going to be possible your wife may not always be perfectly obedient to the Lord. It's possible, just remotely, that through the course of your marriage, your wife will not exhibit every characteristic of a godly wife set forth in verses 1 through 6. In fact, it's quite possible for some men, they're not married to a believer. It does not matter, gentlemen. That's never an excuse for you. That's never an excuse for you to ignore the Lord's commands. Your being a godly husband is not dependent on your wife's behavior and whether everything is set up for you perfectly. You have to do the exact same thing that Jesus did no matter the circumstances. You entrust yourself to God the Father in the same way that Jesus did. I think I'm being clear, but I don't want to leave this without it being crystal clear. The key to you being a godly husband is not your wife and her behavior. The key is your faith and trust in God. Because if you trust God and rely on Him first and foremost, you can be a godly husband regardless of the circumstances in your home. I've shared along these lines, but I can't tell you the number of times in marriage counseling, I know what I'm up against in the first meeting. Because the husband sits there and will explain, if my wife would just live by Scripture, everything would be good. It's this woman God gave me. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> Men, that's never okay. That's never okay. You've got to trust the Lord, not your wife's behavior. So the first mark of a godly husband, he is willing to trust the Lord. The second mark is this. He is a lifelong student of his wife. He is a lifelong student of his wife. And I'm going to explain this and I think it will make perfect sense even though I phrased it a little bit differently. Peter says, you husbands in the same way Live with your wives in an understanding way. There are two imperative commands in verse 7. One is live with. 
One we'll cover next week, which is show her honor. But live with your wives in an understanding way is not a suggestion. It is a command of God. To do anything less is sin. It is disobedience. And the way the language is conveyed, this is not an occasional thing to do, men. This isn't the time once or twice a year where you get cards or flowers. No, this is a daily, continuing responsibility of every man who calls himself a Christian who is married. It's always present. It's always your duty. You never get a day off from the command to live with your wife in an understanding way. And this idea of live with is comprehensive. It refers to every single aspect of the marriage relationship. What is marriage? It's living together with somebody. It involves sharing physical space. Sharing a bedroom, sharing a bathroom. It involves friendship. The one-on-one relationship and intimacy. It involves your communication. It involves your goals and your plans and your dreams and your hopes. It involves where you live and where you work. It involves your spiritual relationship, your emotional relationship, your sexual relationship. Every aspect that you can think of, if you sat and thought about it for a while and you said, this is part of my life, it's consumed with this word, live with. And the prescribed method for living with is really the crux of my point, but it's the crux of what Peter is saying. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, in the original language, and you look at various English translations, it's translated differently, but it's live with your wife according to knowledge. So when it says an understanding way, this isn't some contemplative emotion. No, this is according to knowledge and wisdom of knowing your wife. A husband is supposed to live wisely with his wife, with knowledge of who she is, and to do that, a husband has to pay attention to his wife. You have to learn what your wife likes. You have to learn what your wife dislikes. You have to learn what your wife's hopes and dreams and weaknesses and struggles, strengths, One commentator noted, this involves the husband's understanding of the wife's desires, goals, and frustrations, knowledge of her strengths and weaknesses in the physical, emotional, and spiritual realms. Now, if you're married, this is the time to take a deep breath and start taking an inventory. Because if I ask you, are you living your life in a godly way in the same way that Jesus did? You might go, oh, I'm doing that. I'm okay. I got some work to do. 
But now we're getting personal. Are you living with your wife this way? Do you know your wife? Do you pay attention to your wife? Do you listen to your wife? Now I'm going to say something and then I'm going to kick myself for saying it. Because even as I say it, I'm going to tell you that at times I'm a hypocrite. But I'm going to say, I'm often baffled when I talk to men at how little attention they pay to their wives. If you ask them, what is your wife like? They're absolutely clueless. It's as though they've lived for 20 years with a bag over their head. And earplugs in. Men, that is unacceptable. If you're just a roommate of your wife, you're sinning. I'm sorry, it's true. You can't honor her, as we're going to learn next week, we're required to do, if you don't even know her. And I don't assume that longevity of a relationship indicates knowledge. You have to learn about your wives, and this is a never-ending process. And I kick myself because I can point to chapters and times in my life where I was oblivious. I've been married to Debbie for 26 plus years. January 4th, 1992. I've known her for over 35 years from when her family moved to my hometown and we went to high school together. I still need to pay attention to Debbie. I still need to learn about her. You already understand this. Many of you are older than me. Some of you are not. But life is not static. There's always change. There's always new things happening. We're on the doorstep of an exciting time in life. But it's also a little scary. On May 17th, our oldest daughter is going to turn 21. That's hard for me to believe. Many of you have been there, but you know, I still remember little baby Tiny. That's what we called her because she was 5 pounds, 12 ounces at birth. She'll be an adult in every way. And then I've got another daughter who's not my oldest. She's going to be married and move out. That's still snapping my brain when I think about it. But guess what? That changes our home. That changes what's going on. I have to pay attention to watch and learn and see the impact of all these things on Debbie because I need to live with her according to knowledge and the knowledge changes as life keeps going. I'm going to say something you all know. I'm different today at 51 than I was when I was 25 when I got married. I'm different than I was at 30 or at 40. We all do that. Drives me crazy, not in the cultural sense, because the culture just does what it does, but when I hear Christians say, well, we just kind of drifted apart. That was an act of choice to disobey God. That should never be the case with Christians. Because, husband, it's your responsibility to make sure that's not happening. You've got to be a student of your wife. You've got to pay attention to her. And as life changes, you've got to pay attention to the changes in her so that you can respond appropriately. You've got to observe. You've got to listen. You've got to ask questions. It's always a struggle for me because I know everything. Why would I ask my wife anything? That's just my foolishness. But I 
being honest with you, that's how I live a lot of times when I'm not thinking right. And I get it. And Debbie and I sometimes fantasize about our retirement on a cruise ship somewhere. That's not reality. That ain't going to happen. But depending on your stage in life, I understand it's, life is busy. When you're working and if your wife is working or if you've got kids or if you've got grandkids or if you've got ministry responsibilities, sometimes it can be a fight for Debbie and I to find 10 minutes when we're not completely exhausted and numbed to talk to each other. I get it. But husbands, it's not your wife's job to make that happen. It's your job. And you've got to take stock of whether you are paying attention to your wife. You cannot obey God and live with your wife according to knowledge in an understanding way if you don't pay any attention to her. If you don't make it your priority. I'm doing premarital counseling now with Alex and Heather because I'm doing their wedding and I, it's one of the requirements of any wedding that I do. Steve is the same way. We make people go through premarital counseling. And I always strive to teach young husbands who are all starry-eyed and everything is wonderful and I'm marrying a perfect person to learn, to pay attention. Because at the moment they join and they start living under the same roof, life changes. But that's not something for newlyweds and prospective husbands. I don't care if you've been married 30 or 40 or 50 years. If you're breathing, God expects you to keep obeying. That's why I say you're a lifelong student. You're a lifelong student of your wife. You never stop. So the marks of a godly husband. He's willing to trust the Lord. He is a lifelong student of his wife. And third, he patiently accommodates his wife's limitations. He patiently accommodates his wife's limitations. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. Now I'm going to get into the substance of the verse. I have it in my notes to make a disclaimer. Everything I'm about to say is politically incorrect and is anathema to what our society thinks. (laughs) If you value the world's views more than God's word, prepare to be upset. Peter provides an explanatory basis that I think is best understood and along with the version that I read. Some commentators will divide this up, but I think this fits with live with. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. What Peter is saying to us as husbands is that part of knowing your wife, part of studying your wife, part of Your responsibility to live in an understanding way is to recognize something that is generally inherent in women as opposed to men. The original language, if you translated it literally, it's not an improper translation to say as with someone weaker, but the original language says a weaker vessel. Some versions translate it a little bit closer to that. Peter says that being a woman, her status as a woman makes her a weaker vessel. 
And that term vessel is often used to things that are a part of a home. But here, Peter is simply referring to wife, not as an object, but as an instrument that God uses. The implication is that the man is also a vessel used by God. It's just of the two, the wife is the weaker vessel. I believe Peter is picturing a husband and wife here with imagery that the Apostle Paul used in a particular context. In 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, Paul used imagery talking about Christians. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That's the imagery that Peter is using here, is that we are vessels that are supposed to be prepared, working for the Lord, and in the position of husband and wife, the wife is the weaker of the two. Now again, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You look around in America and people would storm the church and protest for saying that. How dare you? You're misogynistic. You hate women. You want to oppress women. It's just like you conservative Christians trying to stifle women. How dare you teach something like that? And sadly, it's not the unbelievers. It's other churches that are out there propagating this. Twisting Scripture. Well, we have to teach what Scripture says. That's what Scripture says. But it's important because we can be so poisoned by the dominant cultural conventions of our day, we have to understand that in the context, Peter's not insulting women. In fact, his statement is not even intended to be negative. Not in the sense of some moral culpability that you've got to live with her because she's bad. That's not it at all. In fact, Scripture makes it clear that within Christianity, women are elevated to a position unknown anywhere else. I've already read Galatians 3, 28, but that's such a beautiful picture. There's neither male nor female, meaning you don't have a lesser status because you're a woman who's come into faith. Not at all. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. So Peter's not insulting women when he says that they are the weaker vessel. He's not trying to poke at women. He's not trying in any way to cast aspersions. So what is he saying? He is saying there's a difference between men and women. That really gets America going. There is a difference. I think it's a simple truth. He's not saying women are less intelligent. There are a lot of smart women. In fact, most men know that many times your wives are thinking better than you are. He's certainly not saying women are spiritually inferior. He's affirmed in just a moment, joint heirs of the grace of life. They've got equal status. I think what he's saying is a simple acknowledgement that in general... The physical stature of a woman is lesser than the physical stature of a man. 
again, that's not in every case. Occasionally you'll see a six-foot woman with a five-man five and you scratch your head, but the Lord makes everybody and that's okay. And there are some women that are stronger than their husbands physically because their husbands have some kind of physical disability or because God's just gifted them with a strong body. But in general, what Peter is acknowledging is that husbands need to be aware that in the daily interactions in life, your wife is going to be not quite as strong as you are and you need to make allowance for that. She's going to be less strong. She's going to have less endurance. You need to just pay attention and accommodate that. If you think about it, and you can look back at those times, but even today, much of the world still exists on manual labor. Husbands and wives are in the field together, and they're working, or they're fishing, or they're doing some type of manual labor. Certainly you can see how in that context it would make sense for a husband to pay attention to the fact that your wife can't work probably quite as long as you can. She can't lift probably quite as much as you can. Be aware of that. But certainly, even if we're not farmers or fishermen or we're not lumberjacks with a two-person cutting crew of husband and wife, you still have to pay attention. You've got to be aware of your wife's limitations. Certainly, if you're moving stuff, if you're doing stuff, you've got to pay attention and make allowances. It's embarrassing to me the number of times I've gotten frustrated with Debbie when I'm trying to move something. It's like, no, just lift it over your shoulders. How foolish is that? But even in daily life, just look. Is your wife weaker in some way? Could be that she has a physical limitation. Pay attention. Read an interesting thought that I wouldn't I wouldn't lock it down and say it is absolutely true, but the reality is, and I don't think it's injustice to the scriptures, women are in a vulnerable position in marriage. Period. And sometimes those vulnerabilities could be physical. They could be in other ways. Husbands, recognize your wife's vulnerability. Be sympathetic to that, not frustrated with it. Be mindful of the pressure that she operates under in her status as a wife and as a woman. And don't get frustrated with her. Pay attention to her. Learn her. Learn her strengths and weaknesses. And if you know your wife has weaknesses, accommodate them. Don't berate her for them. Help her in her weaknesses. Don't exploit them for your own purposes. Because as we're going to see next week, as I get farther into verse 7, how you treat your wife matters to God. So much so that if you're not treating your wife well, you don't have a good relationship with the Lord. And I can show you that from Scripture. So, we'll stop here for today. Join me as I close this time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us who are husbands. Lord, give us wisdom to obey you. Lord, help us honestly evaluate and take stock of our lives and to see how we're doing as husbands. Lord, are we living in the same way that Christ lived? 
Lord, are we paying attention to our wives? Are we studying our wives? Are we caring to know about our wives? Lord, are we even paying attention to our wives' weaknesses and limitations? Or are we just bulldozing through life, doing what we want to do? Help us, Lord. Help us as men to not be so selfish and self-centered. Pray that we will cherish the wives you've given us. Regardless of their behavior, I pray that you would help us cherish them. And Lord, for any men who aren't married, I pray that if you bring a woman into their lives and they one day are married, that they'll remember these lessons of your word and apply them. And I pray, Lord, that we would repent where we need to repent. Help us not be content to identify sin. Help us turn from it. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.